Holy One who sits above all, the great creator, the one who has placed the stars, formed the mountains, is the very one who before time began knew full well that salvation was needed for your creation. Left to our own devices, our own intellect, our own resources, we are helpless apart from your son, Jesus, who you sent to pay the price for our sin and for those who've placed their faith in your son have not only the forgiveness of sin, but according to 2 Corinthians 5, his righteousness is reckoned to our account. And so we are seen as holy. And Lord, we marvel and we stand in awe of you. Father, we come to the text here in Jude, and the church is called to contend, to battle for the faith, to take a stand in the midst of a world that is so hostile to the things of you, who want nothing to do with your holiness. And so, Father, as we go to the text today, guide us. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Jude chapter 1. We're in Jude, we're only looking at chapter 1. I joked earlier, there's only one chapter. Jude, verse 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 is where we are this morning. Jude, if you don't know where that's at, if you get to the book of Revelation, you just need to come back one book and you're in Jude. No doubt you've been glued to the TV, as many are, watching the 2023 World Chess Championship. (laughs) Nothing is more riveting, right? (laughs) Well, for however, those of you who do know chess, you know that this year is quite a surprise because the incumbent champion, that is Magnus Carlsen, who has the highest chess rating in history, decided not to defend his title against Jan Nepomenichi. <laughs> Got it. Nepomenichi. He stated, Magnuson did, that he, he no longer wanted to contend or battle for the title. He simply felt he didn't have anything to gain by playing this year. Mr. Carlson certainly has nothing to prove, does he? I mean, he's already, what, a five time world champion of chess? However, as followers of Jesus Christ, We don't have this option when it comes to our faith. We're called to contend or to battle our faith. In fact, Jude sees this as a problem for the church. He changes course in writing, and he's going to tell us that as we come to verses 3 and 4 of Jude. He says, Dear friends, although I have been eager to write to you about our common salvation I now feel compelled instead to write to you and to encourage you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men have secretly slipped in among you, men who long ago were marked out for their condemnation. I'm about to describe ungodly men who have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil. These ones deny our master and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these two verses, Jude is going to kind of lay out who should be contending for their faith, why should we be contending for our faith, what is our faith, and we'll elaborate at the end on how then do we exactly 
contend for our faith. But let's look at the who. He starts off in there in verse 3, and he says, dear friends. That's a loaded term, because it's used in the Old Testament to refer to God's chosen people, Israel. It's referred to God's people in the New Testament. Uh, Paul will use the term. Peter will use the term, as we've seen in our study of First and Second Peter. Uh, James will use it. John will use the term. It's affectionate term, and it should be in keeping. You would expect this, because how did the letter begin? Notice how Jude stated, a slave of Jesus Christ, a brother of James, to those who are called wrapped in, here it is, the love of God. He says, you're beloved. And so we know one thing about our audience, they are loved. And he highlights this. But it's interesting, that term, as we're going to see, is also used as a transition. In fact, Jude will use the, the term three times to change direction within the letter. And let me show you. We've looked at this chart, this layout of the book of Jude. Again, we, we looked at the opening, verses 1 and 2. And you can see the purpose is stated within the body, verses 3 and 4. There's something very unusual. If you study first century writings or you look at the New Testament writings, there's something missing, and that is a thanksgiving. Normally, after the opening, there is a few words from the writer who says, I just praise the Lord for you, or I can't stop thanking the Lord for you. Every time I think of you, I, I give thanks. Whatever the case is, before you move into the body of the material, Jude does not waste any time. Of course, he only has 460-some words to use here in this short epistle. So yes, I mean, he's, he's hard-pressed, but he's moving fast and he jumps over the thanksgiving to get to this point, And that is, I've got a reason we need to, to address. This is why I'm writing. As we see here, he initially wanted to address their common salvation, which tells us more about the audience, doesn't it? They're loved. And he says, we have a common, see there in verse 3, a common salvation. What's he referring to here? I believe he's talking about that supernatural transformation of one's life that's accomplished through faith in what Christ accomplished at the cross and in the death and burial resurrection. In other words, our audience are Christ followers. They're believers. And Jude, he wanted to elaborate on that, and he did, I think, a little bit there in the opening when he talks, we, we looked at that last week. But he says, I, I've got something far more important that I need to address. And this is where he's compelled. And that is, as he says here in the text, is that you contend earnestly for the faith. Unlike Magnuson, you don't have an option of not defending your title. You must contend for the faith. And he's gravely concerned. He says, I feel compelled to do this. In other words, there's a changing of direction of his mind. Now, some scholars will argue this is temporal rendering, and it should have been while preparing myself every effort to write to you about a common salvation, I elaborate on this. I don't think so. No, I think it's better to translate this as an aversative. In other words, there's a shift here. We, we, it's it's kind of like when you're watching a TV show, and all of a sudden the emergency broadcast system has an announcement, right? You're like, no! They were just about to tell me who killed so-and-so, right? <clears throat> and, and you get this break, uh, and while we don't have an interruption because we're changing the whole course of direction here, it tells us something serious is happening. In fact, the term compelled is used 17 times in the New Testament, and it's always linked with distress, 
calamity or some type of pressure that's being developed here. And Jude is saying, I was going to write this. I heard about this. How? We don't know. Did someone come with a report? Did he receive a letter? We don't know. But because of this, he's changing direction with the letter as he writes. So the who? All believers are to contend for their faith. But what is faith? What's he talking about when he says to, to contend earnestly for the faith? Well, as you know, scholars love to uh, discuss and there are three major proposals. The first of these is what Jude is referring to when he says the faith. He's talking about church doctrine, dogma, church tradition that comes later in the second century. Well, there's a problem with that, isn't there? Jude, I argued last week, was written in 50-60 AD. It's hard to have a copy or an issue uh, that's pre what the issue is being addressed. That didn't make sense at all, did it? Uh, I, good thing I'm not playing chess today. Uh, what, to say that the book was written at this time frame does not fit uh, at all. So that view doesn't wash. The second is what the faith here is that Jude is referring to is our salvation. Well, again, he just told us he was going to talk about salvation and he changed the course of action. So to me, it's, it's more than just the gospel. I think it's, it's far more than that. And I think the third view, which is the most viable, is we're talking about a body of doctrine that has been passed down from Christ through the apostles to the church. He says, this is what we contend for. And you say, well, where would you get that support, Hophidetz? Well, Galatians 1, Paul talks about the objective content of the Christian message. And in 2 Timothy 4, he says, I've competed well. Paul says, I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And again, I don't think he's just talking about proclaiming Christ as his savior. He's talking about what has been entrusted to him. And throughout the New Testament, we are told time and time again of a body of tradition, doctrine, that has been passed down through the church. I think it's 2 Thessalonians 2. What we're going to see as we journey through this little epistle, this little letter, as the false teachers paint tradition, traditions, traditions, as a set of practices and beliefs that are outdated, irrelevant, and quite frankly, narrow-minded. Scripture, as we're going to see, and I would argue, provides sound, practical, and invaluable teaching. It is the faith this doctrine of which Jude is saying we must hold fast to. It's what benefits our spiritual growth. One commentator writes, Jude's language about faith is highly dogmatic, highly orthodox, highly zealous. Men who use such phrases believed passionately in the creed. And I think that's the case. Now notice what Jude says about the faith because it's very important. Notice what he says there in the text compelled to write to you about a faith that was once for all. That tells us it's unique. It, it, it's definite. Thank goodness Apple did not come out with it or we would have another revision every two weeks, right? Another update. No, it, it, what we see with scripture is there's no need for updates. There's no need for corrections or revisions. The church didn't come out a hundred years later and say, now we need to revise what John said in his gospel. Mm -mm. 
or we need to issue some corrections to Matthew's gospel. No. Jude is telling us it's once for all. There are no supplements. There are no corrections that are given. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy 4, where it says, Do not add a thing to what I commanded you. This is the Lord speaking. Nor subtract from it so that you keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I am delivering to you. The substance of apostolic faith, this body of doctrine, is complete and must, be govern, must govern the meaning of terms in which doctrine is defined and discussed. You say, well, hey, Hophidetz, can someone defend this close, what we call canon, this rule, these 66 books based on Scripture testifying to itself? Well, Charles Ryrie answered that in his basic theology. He goes, yes, I can. Because like any other witness, the Bible has a right to testify on its own behalf. So what we see here is it's once for all, Jude says. And he states it's been entrusted or it's been delivered. This is a passive voice here. In other words, the faith is not performing the action, but it's having action performed to it. In other words, this message has been delivered to the church Verse 17, Jude's going to talk about this. We'll look at later. It's a reminder that what we have in the canon, in the Bible today, in the Old and New Testament, is based on what the prophets and the apostles have delivered to us. Ephesians 2 says this in 19 and 20. So that you are no longer foreigners or non-citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints, members of God's household, because you have been built on, listen to what he says, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This, by the way, implies that the doctrine can be taught, <laughs> it can be understood, and you will be held accountable. So in a post-postmodern world that would argue we can't know anything or we all, whatever's true is valid for you, that does not work. That's not how it was understood in the Old and the New Testament. This has been delivered to you. You're expected to know this. And again, the assumption is that you can know it. So we see here this body of truth, this faith that we are contending for as believers. It's once for all. It's been delivered. And notice it says it's been delivered and trusted to whom? The saints. This, this isn't a specific body, but it's the church at large, I would argue, that has been entrusted the teachings of the prophets and the apostles. You say, well, why? Why is that so significant? Because the scriptures are sufficient for bringing individuals to salvation, to give instruction in righteousness, and equipping us to perform good deeds. Second Timothy 3. In other words, there's nothing lacking from Scripture. So then the question is, of course, if that's the case, why do you need church doctrine or why do you need extra canonical books? This is sufficient. If it is, then we rest here. And Jude is saying, it's once for all, it's been delivered, and it's been delivered to the saints. So this faith that we are to contend for, uh, Jude tells us the who, he tells us the what, and now he gets to the why. And this is the reason he has changed course of action. It's why the beeping noise on the TV from the emergency broadcast system has shifted everything. Because he gives us the why in verse 4. Certain men, he states, have, been, have secretly slipped in among you. 
I love that we've been studying First and Second Peter and Jude because they, they go hand in hand. In First Peter, there's more of the church just staying pure. And there is the enemies on the outside, but just beware. Second Peter, the false teachers have the foot in the door. <laughs> uh, the door cannot close. In Jude, they're sitting at the table. Jude is extremely alarmed of what has happened, what has transpired. And he says, certain men. It's interesting, that term could be a disparaging reference. <laughs> that group, kind of an idea. Uh, why? Because it's, it's, it's used of rebels. Who is that group? Well, we could debate this. We're going to see, uh, as we journey through starting next week, kind of possibilities of whom they are. But certainly in verse 4, Jude lets us know a little bit about who they are because he provides a description. Notice he says, first of all, they have secretly slipped in among you. They're subtle. I love the NLT rendering. It says they have wormed their way into the church. <laughs> They're in the camp. They're not outside. The ant traps have not worked. They're now at the kitchen counter. Uh, we've got a problem, right? Their true character, the way this is stated here is clear. Their character, their motives have been hidden. They've been working underground and they're drilling holes into the very foundation of the church. I was reading an article on Michael Weiss in 2017. He translated and published a host of unearthed KGB training manuals. Listen to what he says. He says, the KGB was a masterful at understanding the pressure points, vulnerabilities, and vices that went into running spies and agents. He writes, a KGB case officer was a combination of a priest, a therapist, a best friend, and also a mortal enemy. He was somebody who was trying to get you to do things that would ultimately destroy yourself, whether professionally or personally. He said it was about reading people, understanding what their weaknesses are, learning how to recruit them, how to get them to do things they otherwise would not be willing to do. That is also a false teacher. And far worse than the Cold War spy game and espionage and all of that is spiritual espionage by suggesting subtle redefinitions by making crafty modifications or by suggesting that contemporary Christianity needs to reimagine, update, or simply jettison some supposedly obsolete doctrine, these false teachers have continued to infiltrate the church by sowing seeds of doubt and confusion and bringing certain destruction. This is why I would argue that one of the most dangerous things facing the church is not the world in which we live, it's those which have come into the camp. And Satan has been very effective. In fact, one of his most effective tools are so-called ministers and Bible professors across this land. And Jude is saying, be on guard. They are subtle, they know what they are doing. And notice what else he says. These men who have long ago been condemned are marked out for condemnation. The question, of course, is what is Jude referring to here? I think what he's referring to is 
time and time again through Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, there's been a warning to those who would fall into what we call apostasy, that is denying the faith, abandoning the things of the Lord. Even Jewish tradition between the Old and the New Testament discussed this. And what they have done is that they have undermined the sovereignty of God. They have abandoned what they know and, and have sought to undermine the things of the Lord. And consequently, God has sovereignty stated they will be judged. Keep in mind, God's sovereignty does not absolve their guilt. James 1 is clear. Let no one say he's tempted say that I'm tempted by God. God cannot be tempted. In fact, he goes on to say, you can't even blame Satan. <laughs> There's no one to blame for your crud in your life, ultimately, except yourself. Scripture is clear on this. No one falls simply into sin. They do this by themselves. And the reason for their judgment stems from their ungodliness and their denial of the Lord's lordship. And that's true of the false teachers. Their direct cause is the evil that they have placed. And I know some have saying, well, wait a minute. If it says here in the text that they've been marked out for condemnation, it would appear to say that he's ordained them for destruction. Romans 9 might be quoted. God has mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy. And he hardens whom he chooses to harden. Well, I love Jonathan Edwards, the former president of Princeton, way back. He says, God, he states, does indeed harden stubborn hearts, but he does it in two ways. He withholds the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit and his mercy of the grace that he would extend. In other words, God leaves them to their hardness like you leave out Play-Doh. I think one of the best examples is Pharaoh. When we looked uh, several, oh my, it's been almost a year and a half ago, we looked at the life of Moses, the hardness of his heart. He hardens his heart in the first few plagues, but when you get to the latter plagues, it is God hardening his heart. Why? Because he's already hardened his heart. They're, these false teachers have no one to blame but themselves. And those who go this route, God has made it very clear, this will be your judgment. God will accomplish his will, which tells us, by the way, he can use even crud in this world. He can use even evil people to accomplish the task that he needs to do. Ephesians 1, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. It also tells us, as I look at this, that these individuals are marked out for the condemnation that is to come, is that God has zero tolerance for apostasy, for false teaching. I mean, think of Matthew 5, if a salt loses its flavor, it's useless. <laughs> There's zero tolerance. Again, Jude is addressing, let's keep this in mind, gospel corruptors. These are Christ deniers. These aren't people who struggle with sin and they come back and forth. No, no, no. We're talking about who have blatantly rejected Christ and the things that are true. And Jude sees an imminent danger that resides with the church and that false teaching that has crept in. And this is why he says, I'm changing my course of direction. Contend for the faith. They're subtle. They're condemned. Notice what else he states about these individuals. He says, I'm about to describe them, he says. And we'll look at that in the next couple of weeks. He says, they're ungodly men. This godlessness 
speaks of an unwillingness to worship God Almighty. Uh, one scholar notes the term is used of irreverence in an ethical sense, not a theoretical atheism, but a practical godliness. They live as if God is no longer in charge. I'd probably have no problem saying, yes, oh, I know he exists, but what can you really know about him? You get the idea. And we are told, not only are they godless, they are immoral. Notice this, they have turned the grace of our God into a license for evil. They've taken the so-called banner of grace and said, ah, that's the get out of jail free card. I can do whatever I want. And so away they go, right? They, they have minimized the effects of sin and the penalty that comes. And they've abused their freedoms so to fulfill, and the text says a license for evil, it's clear that term, it's used four other times in Jude. It's referring to sexual immorality. So they have used their position, abused the teachings in order to fulfill their own lust, their own desires. The actions seem so incomprehensible, don't they? Because notice what the text says. They, they have denied they have turned the grace of our God into a license for sin and deny the master we'll get to in a minute. But they, they've turned this grace upside down. Can you, can you imagine my wife if she had saved up and said, I've got you a sports jacket for your birthday. Here it is. And she'd been waiting all this time to give it to me. The next day she comes home from work and there I am out spreading mulch in my new sports jacket. You got it. I can even see red right now. Smoke's coming out. I, I get shot. <laughs> you don't do that, right? What? You, that's unbelievable. What grace that she'd give you a nice sports jacket and you'd be out doing mulch, ruining it? It's unbelievable that someone would take the mercy and the overwhelming generosity showered upon them by God, spit on it, and drag it through the mud. But the false teachers have taken the grace that has been extended to them and said, no. I have no use for this. I wrote, self-absorption and sinful desires lack gratitude. Find me an ungrateful person and we got a problem. Believers should be some of the most grateful people walking this globe. That's a whole other sermon. But self-absorption, sinful desires lack gratitude and they will fall, they fail in self-awareness and they are certain for self-destruction. And that's the sad part we see here. Now, don't forget, <laughs> these false teachers are very subtle. It's not just blatant. I've said it long and loud enough. I think the false teachers, they, they, how they gain territory is often they'll, they'll push the envelope so far, 100 feet, and everyone's going, oh, no, we can't do that. Okay, we'll come back. But they still move six inches. And they keep doing it. And before long, we're well past 100 feet. You say, oh, that hasn't happened in the church. Well, sin is now repackaged as acceptance, diversity, and love. And what once was viewed as immoral is now considered trendy in order for the church to connect with the culture. It's subtle. And it doesn't take long. And before we know it, we're way over here and which should have never been. And Jude says, contend for the faith. You who are saints, you who claim to know Christ, don't give in to the faith this body of material has been given and watch out. Why? Because they're subtle. They're already condemned, but they're, they're working fast. 
They're godless. They're immoral. And we see the final description here in verse 4. They deny their only master and Lord. (laughs) I love it. The master and Lord are terms usually given to God, Yahweh. And here it's given to the Lord, Jesus. In other words, Jesus is also God. He's highlighting this. This is, again, it fits with him referring to himself as a slave of Jesus. Even though he's the half-brother of Jesus. No, this is my master. And you, the false teachers, have denied the one who sits and reigns. Titus 1, they profess to know God, but with their deeds they deny him since they are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good deed. They discredit the grace given by Christ and they dismiss the person of Christ. They have forgotten what we must remember, that God or Christ is the head of the church. The church must be careful in its various programs and its various marketing stunts. It cannot eclipse the Lord and his glory. Christ is the master, he is the head, and we are the servants. And I am so grateful, are you not, for our elders, for our deacons, for our staff, for our many volunteers who lead up numerous ministries within the church that we are seeking as a body to love Christ, love God, and love others well. That cannot be eclipsed in any program that we want to create because that's the problem with the false teachers. Christ plays second fiddle. His master over them is forgotten. Well, the final question in your notes there is then how? How, Hophetus, do we contend for the faith? We've looked at the who, we looked at the what and the why. It's interesting, the term for contend is used of athletes in the first century. It's, it's stretching the muscles and exercising, something I'm not very familiar with, but you might. Uh, it's being devoted, it's being committed. I say that in shame, but yes. Notice, he, he gives us three, well, I'm going to give you three things based on, I think, the text. Contending for the faith indicates a seriousness about the truth. We can't do this relaxing in a recliner, sipping lemonade, or uh, laying in a hammock. It's not going to happen. And I've written three things with seriousness. First of all, it's being seriousness, which is productive. Every Christian must be biblically educated theologian. Hands down. You say, well, I'm not interested in getting a Bible degree. That's all right. But we need to be defenders of the faith. It's interesting. uh, FD is minted on the British coins. It means that the king is the defender of the faith. You may have seen the newest coin that's coming out with Charles III. And you'll notice it's Charles III. And then it says DG Rex for king. FD. That says, King Charles III, the king, by the grace of God, defender of the faith. That should be minted on all of our coins. This is who I am, by the grace of God, defender of the faith. As a result of God's grace, we have been called. And Hosea 4 says, people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We need to be in the word. And that means serious business. It's being productive, which means also then we have to be proactive, which is in your notes there. John 8 talks about truth is the only thing that can liberate people from the bondage of sin and give them eternal life. We need to be in the Word. That's personally through devotions. Maybe it's a group Bible studies. We have a ton of those from teens all the way up to men and women. 
attending the church, memorizing scripture. Perhaps it's taking an online Bible course. There are a ton of schools now that provide that opportunity. We even have seminaries in, the, in Dallas Seminary has a hub. Now there's ITS. We have several seminaries in the area. Perhaps it's taking a course. Some of you are doing that. But Bible reading is essential to Christian discipleship. If you're not in the Word, you will dry up. This is true. Joshua 1.8. This law scroll must not leave your lips. You must memorize it day and night so that you can carefully obey what is written, that you will prosper and be successful. Are you spending time in the Word? You say, well, I've never read the Bible. Well, let me challenge you. Start with the Gospel of John. Just do a chapter a day. That's, that's less time than watching a commercial during the NBA championship playoffs, right? Just, just spend it one few minutes every day reading one chapter from the gospel of John and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you. It's a seriousness which is not only productive, proactive, but it proliferates. In other words, we're not soaking this all in so we become the frozen chosen or have this ivory tower mentality. It's so that we can go then and disciple others. One of our adult Sunday school teachers told me, he says, you know, I'm learning so much from teaching. I said, yes, that's what this is about. So get involved. Thank you to our nursery, our children, our students, leaders who are teaching them the word. Those involved in the, the Bible studies for men and women. Let me encourage you. Get involved. Teach others. Well, contending for our faith also calls for perseverance, as you see there in your notes. I love the sign on Dallas Theological Seminary's front lawn. It says, preach the word. <laughs> Reminds me of, it's from 2 Timothy. It's preach the message, be ready, whether it's convenient or not. We need to cling fast to the truth, especially in the times in which we live. I love the second verse of the old hymn, standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. And third, contending for our faith has a direct bearing on our actions. Doctrine and duty go hand in hand. This isn't knowledge for knowledge's sake, and we've talked about this. A Bible study should never end at interpretation. It's to end at application, applying it to our lives there's a danger that we live in, this mantra that you hear, well, why don't we just focus on love and unity? All this doctrine stuff is divisive. Those who've embraced today's rhetoric believe a dialogue of moral, morally superior to a debate, a conversation is errantly more edifying than a controversy, and fellowship is always better than a fight. But we're missing that. We are to cling to orthodoxy. We, we're, no, yes, we don't become quarrelsome or belligerent. But 2 Timothy 2 says, and the Lord's slave must engage in heated disputes, but be kind towards all, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. And that's true whether it's in a conversation at work or at school, whether it's true on a social media post, we need to be walking in kindness and grace. You know, far too often the church is known for what it's against rather than what it's for. What are we about? We're here to love God and love others. And so a church, Jude is right. We're called to contend for the faith. 
that which has been entrusted to us by the prophets and the apostles. Why? Because the enemy is alive and well. <laughs> Very much so. And thus we are to contend for the faith by taking serious God's word, persevering even in adversity, and living out the truth in our lives. Father, we thank you for your word. And as Jude has highlighted to his recipients, we live in a day and an age in which the things that have been passed down to us from the prophets and the apostles which are embodied in these 66 books called the Bible is being undermined. It used to be we questioned inspiration. Now we question no ability. The, the post change False teachings change, but our orthodoxy should not. Truth never wavers. It's been once for all passed down. And Father, we are to contend for this. And we pray for strength as followers of Christ, as ones who have been gifted this truth, Lord, to be in it, to live it, and to expound on it as we make disciples for your glory.